0: Thanks, Joanne. So, I know, I just kind of heard through the grapevine that Joanne actually went to Brian and said, hey, can I, can I sing this song on a Sunday morning? And if you know their story, you know that's their prayer. And so one of the things that I would encourage you in is that, you know, very often you're not going to find people in this church who are intent upon impressing you with a performance. They instead want to invite you into their life so that you can know their story and see the God behind it. And so if you don't know their story, if you haven't talked to Joanne and Mike and learned about the things that they are struggling through and trusting God in, then ask them because they would love to tell you about the God who has proven himself to be faithful. So, and with that, let me just encourage you. As we spend time together, we all have stories And we need to know those stories because that's when things like that are even more meaningful. Because, Joanne, I could hear you sing. (laughs) I know your story. And it blesses my heart to hear those words come out of your mouth. So thank you for doing that. So when Paul began his letter to the Galatians, he, early in that letter, said, I'm amazed that you have so quickly deserted him who called you by grace in Christ for a different gospel. And I want you to recognize that Paul didn't say that I'm amazed that you have so quickly deserted me, the one who led you to faith, or, or deserted the, the church, you've left the family of God. No, he says that you've deserted God when you abandoned the gospel of grace. You see, the message of the gospel is intended to lead us towards a relationship with God. It's not about believing a certain set of facts. It's not about joining a particular group of people. Instead, the good news of the gospel is about being reconciled to God. It is the belief that forgiveness restores a relationship that sin has destroyed. Paul's concern that the Galatians are at risk of turning this relationship with God into a religious ritual, which is why he spends so much time using the language he does to describe what it means to be a part of the family of God. Last week, we talked about how he says, you've been adopted as a son of God, that you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir to God. All the blessings of God that come through faith in Christ are built into an abiding relationship with Him. That's where we find freedom and, and value, purpose and hope. It's where we find our identity. Remember because of the one to whom we belong. If you remember that quote last week, it said that, "I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights." I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble. And neither am I. Those are truths that come out of the experience of an abiding relationship with Christ. But it's so easy for the Galatians, and if it's easy for them, I promise you, it's easy for us to turn that relationship into a ritual. We start relying on what we do instead of living out of who we are. God becomes a subject we study instead of a person that we know and love. We end up trying to please Him instead of learning what it means to be loved by Him. In our world today, we have a lot of advances in what is known as artificial intelligence or AI And in part, at least, the purpose of AI is to try to help build a relationship between humanity and technology. That's why you have Siri, right? Your virtual assistant in the sky who you can ask to tell you a joke. You can ask Siri to give you an encouraging word. But it's all based on formulas and mathematical equations. Love, however, is not a math problem that you solve. It's a relationship. And very often, sometimes I think we we treat God like Siri, like that virtual assistant in the sky instead of knowing and loving and living in relationship with him. And I believe that's what Paul is most concerned about when he is writing to the Galatians. He wants us to understand that the Christian faith is not a formula that you learn to follow. It is an abiding relationship with the living God who wants you to become everything he's created you to be. That's what it's all about. That's the goodness built into his design to know and be known by him. And yet still in the midst of that, to be deeply loved by him. So that's what we're going to walk into together this morning. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful that you do not remain distant, that you don't want to be a subject that we study, that you don't want to be known by a certain set of facts, but you want to be known in a deep, real and intimate way. You want us to understand your heart, to live according to your promises, because we trust in the faithfulness of your love and your goodness, your kindness and your mercies. So, Father, as we enter into your word this morning, I just pray that it comes to life in our hearts so that we see this not as just truth that we try to live by, but somehow distance ourselves from you. But it's actually intended to draw us into you, into a deeper, more intimate relationship with you. And I pray that in some miraculous way, by the work of your spirit in our hearts, that we might move more closer to you This morning, because of these truths. I pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would turn to Galatians chapter 4, where we left off last. And I would love for you to read with me, beginning in verse 8, where Paul's continuing his plea to the Galatian church. And he says in verse 8, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that perhaps I've labored for you in in vain. If you look closely at the letter to the Galatians and you read through it, you'll see that it is really a story of contrast. Over and over throughout this letter, Paul will contrast who you are in Christ compared to who you were apart from Christ. Last week, we talked about who we are in Christ because of our faith in Him, that we've been adopted into the family of God, that we're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God. And now here in verse 8, he shifts and he says, however, at that time when you did not know God, he's shifting from who you are in Christ to who you were apart from Christ. He's saying that at that time you were slaves to false gods. Now, for many in that culture, That was the actual worship of idols, right? There were no shortage of options of gods and goddesses within the Greek mythology. But their worship was always dependent upon a need that god or goddess promised to supply, without exception. There was the god of fertility, both in terms of a harvest for a crop or children in a family. There was the God of war for victory in battle. There was the God of, of wisdom, the God of wealth, the God of sleep, the God of time. There was not an aspect in daily life that did not have a deity attached to it. And if someone didn't believe in those gods, trust me, they are still a person of faith. (laughs) They are only trusting in themselves to supply those very same needs. Our worship is always centered on our source of hope. It's what we put our trust in for security, for purpose in life. Whether that be some external god or goddess or our own personal abilities. Paul says, apart from Christ, our lives were ruled by these false beliefs. And that's what they are. It's deception. He says, apart from Christ, we were ruled by those false beliefs, that there was something or someone out there that would supply your deepest needs other than the one true God. But in verse 9, he says, now that you've come to know God, your life, Looks very different. And the qualifier he gives here is critically important. He says, now that you've come to know God, or rather, that you've been known by God. You see, our faith is not simply about knowing a certain set of facts about God. Our faith is about being fully known by God. And in that knowledge, still being loved by him. This is about a relationship where we find our hope, our security, our purpose in life, and the one who fully knows us and yet still fully loves us. And it doesn't take anyone in this room very long to examine their heart and their life and realize, wow, I could be very unlovable. Unlovable. There is a lot that would stand in the way of somebody relating to me in that way. And yet, God, you being fully known, still yet fully loves you. See, apart from Christ, we were slaves to selfish desires. Our lives were centered on false hopes. But now, Paul is contrasting, he's saying, but now... Because of Christ, we can trust in a living hope. We can find our identity in the one to whom we belong. We discover our value and our purpose and our worth in life because of everything He has created us to be. And knowing this, after kind of establishing this contrast of who you were and and who you are, Paul says, then why in the world? Why would you want to revert back to a life of false hopes? Trusting, as he says, in the weak and worthless elemental things in this world. And then he gives some examples. He says things like observing days and months and seasons and years. Now, because of what we know about the Judaizers as the influence within the Galatian church, we know that Paul is referencing the tradition of Jewish worship. These are the feasts and the festivals of the Jewish calendar, and Paul is fearful that the Galatians are turning their relationship with God into a religious ritual. Instead of relating to a person, they are following a specific practice. And don't miss the connection he's making here. The Galatians, now think about this, the Galatians, Gentiles, did not come to Christ out of a Jewish lifestyle, did they? They didn't. How did they come to Christ? They came to Christ out of a pagan lifestyle. But what Paul is saying here by equating the two is a religious lifestyle is really no different than a pagan lifestyle. Because if you're not walking in an abiding relationship with Christ, you are living in a world of false hopes. This is not about a certain practice. This is about relating to a specific person who knows you and you are known by him. He knows more about us than infinitely greater than we know about him. But not only that, he knows more about us than we even know of ourselves. And he wants to help us learn everything he's created us to be. And Paul is inviting us to return back to that relationship that we've been created for since the beginning of time. Look at how he continues in verse 12. It says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, as I have also become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But in fact, you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to me in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Himself. Where then is the sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them through me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? Here's where Paul's going to go back to the time when he and the Galatians first met, a time that wasn't under the best of circumstances because, as Paul says, it was because of a bodily illness. Now, there's a lot of speculation on what that illness might have been. Some suggest maybe when he entered into the coastal regions of Galatia that it was very common in those coastal regions for people to contract malaria. And one of the common ways that you would treat malaria in that time is you would go to higher elevations, which is where the Galatian church is, in the higher elevations. Maybe that's what it was. Some suggest that it might have something to do with his eyes, maybe some kind of an eye disease, which is why he tells them, if you could have, you would have given me your your own eyes. But the bottom line is we really don't have any clarity on specifically what the illness was, but what we do know the point that Paul is making is that regardless of what that illness was, the Galatians could have very easily rejected him because of it. They could have seen the illness as a judgment of God and kept their distance from him. That's why he says, You could have despised me or loathed me, but you didn't. Despite my illness, you listened to what I had to say. But now their hospitality is turning. To hostility. A people who was once so willing to learn have shifted from humility to pride. But I believe it's because their faith has become a formula and they can now spit out all the answers. And so they're not so inclined to listen to what Paul has to say. And you can hear the urgency in his plea. He says, I beg of you, brethren... Be as I am, for I also become as you are. I think what Paul is describing here is a posture of humility. He said, you humbly cared for me when I was sick. And now I'm trying to do the same for you. Because walking away from a relationship with God is a spiritual disease. It is a sickness. You are not well. And just in the same way that I was sick when I came to you, in the place that you are now, you are not well, and I am coming to you to care for you. And I would call it a, a spiritual anemia. In case you're not aware, anemia is a, a, a problem in our body where our red, red blood cells don't carry uh, enough oxygen to our body tissue. And as you know, our human bodies survive on supply of oxygen. So when we have anemia, we often feel weak or tired, just kind of lifeless and it can advance to become a disease that is ultimately life-threatening. Paul wants them to know that living in an abiding relationship with God is the lifeblood of our soul. He is the supply of, of spiritual oxygen that we need to survive. And when we walk away from that relationship, we become sick and diseased. We become susceptible to infection, the the infection of false beliefs. Paul is acknowledging the humble care that the Galatians gave to him when he was sick. And now he's trying to do the same for them. He's not their enemy. He's their friend who is trying to speak the truth in love, knowing that they are being led astray by a people who do not have their best interests in mind. Look at how he explains that in verse 17. They, these people who are leading them astray, eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you might seek them. See, the Galatians are being led astray by people who are motivated by selfish interests. There's a term that the Bible often uses to describe this. It's called sordid gain. It's repeated most often in Timothy and Titus when speaking specifically about elders and deacons, which tells me that this warning is there because it is a common temptation for those who are in positions of influence and leadership in the church. It's the desire to gain a following instead of pointing people to the person and work of Christ. And notice how the Judaizers are, gathered, are gaining this following. It says that they're, they're doing it by flattery. It says that they eagerly seek you. In other words, they want you to feel special. They want you to be included. They influence you to become a part of something unique, something innovative, something that no one else is doing, and that's because what you're doing is superior to anyone else. But on the backside of flattery is a not-so-veiled They want you to believe that they are the only ones who are doing it right. So if you're not a part of their group, you're not a part of God's plan. They threaten to shut you out if you're not willing to fit in. But these people were not encouraging the Galatians to live out of their identity in Christ. Instead... They believed that they were the ones who had exclusive rights to divine acceptance. And it was all based on a formula that you follow, not a relationship that you pursue. It was a program, not a person. The glory only belongs to those who are in the right group. That's a false hope. Look at how he continues in verse 18. He says, but it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but but I, I, I could wish to be present with you now to change my tone for I am perplexed by you. Paul says it's not a bad thing to be pursued by someone else, but only in a commendable way when they have your best interests in mind. Because true love, a divine love, is a love that seeks the highest good of the other person. It's not a selfish game. Paul qualifies this by saying, it doesn't have to be me. There are good and godly men and women who are actively involved in a life of ministry, but they only honor the Lord when they lead you to know and follow Jesus Christ. A life of religious ritual, will lead you away from a life of a relationship with Christ. And then in verse 19, he gives us a picture of his pain, and I would describe it this way. I would describe it as the pain of a parent who is watching their child revert back to childish ways. They're seeing this adult child go back to a place of, of selfish interest, of immature thinking, of irrational Behavior And there is no greater pain in the life of a parent than to see their child walk away from God. And I believe that is the pain that Paul is experiencing as he's learning about what's happening at the churches in Galatia. And so here is how I want to consider how Paul's concerns might apply to us. I think we should ask this question. We should ask ourselves, do I follow a pattern, a people, or a person? Okay, if you've got something to write with, write it down. (laughs) Do I follow a pattern, a people, or a person? We'll unpack what that means. Following a pattern is the idea of having a formula for your faith. It's a commitment to a religious ritual, and at face value... It looks really good, because in theory, we're doing all the right things. We're showing up for church on Sunday morning whenever we can. We get involved in a a small group or an ABF whenever we can. We look for opportunities to serve whenever we can, but our faith is often defined by what we do whenever we can. We might grow in knowledge, but we don't grow in love. And if we're honest with ourselves, our practice is not that much different than pagan worship because what we do is ultimately motivated by what we get. It's a consumer relationship where I'm committed to God as long as I'm getting something out of the deal. Our faith becomes a formula we follow. And God is like Siri, that virtual assistant in the sky. But following a pattern will not lead us into an abiding relationship with Christ. And neither will following a people. We do not grow closer to God by simply being in the right group. And I want to be careful here because you know how much I value community and the importance of that in the life of a believer. But our spiritual maturity does not happen through osmosis. There is no ministry model. There is no worship experience. There is no speaker or pastor who can deepen your walk with God. They might lead you to the Lord, and I pray that they do. But they have no power to transform your heart. The Christian faith is based on an abiding relationship with the living God. Only He has the power to transform your life. To become everything that he created you to be. You will not find it in a practice. You will not find it in a people. It has to be grounded in a person. Jesus himself said this is eternal life. Okay, he's going to give it to you. He's telling you this is eternal life. Here's his answer. That they might know you. The one true God. In Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ came so that we might be reconciled in our relationship with God. His forgiveness is what restores the relationship that sin destroyed. It's not a relationship based on simply knowing about him. It's ultimately a relationship that's based on being known by him. And to me, that's the key. When, when Paul makes that little qualifier, I think it's the most important thing he says in this passage. And so to, to better understand that, I want you to think of it in terms of people that you know and love, and especially those that you are most close to. It, it may be uh, your spouse. It, it might be a childhood friend. It could be someone that you've spent time with really getting to know and to love. But typically... It's someone who knows you better than most other people, right? Over time, this is someone that you've been willing to open up your life to. They've seen you at your birth best and, and, and at your worst, and they still love you still the same. Being vulnerable with one another has helped build intimacy with one another. And intimacy is ultimately the outcome of being fully known and yet fully loved. That's a good definition of what intimacy is. Fully known and fully loved. And for that reason, it's a good definition of what it means to be in a relationship with God through faith in Christ. You see, we hide things from people out of fear that they won't love us if they really knew us. But I want you to hear me say that Jesus really, really knows you better than you know yourself. And yet, He really, really loves you. So let me close with this. God knows us infinitely better than we know Him. God knows us infinitely better than we even know ourselves. But if we think about often how we relate to Him, many times I think our relationship is one in which we inform Him Of things that he already knows to be true. And you can just listen to your own prayers, right? Lord, I'm really struggling in my marriage. I'm disappointed. And this is not true, by the way. It's just an example. Very happy (laughs) in my marriage. But we're informing God, here's what's going on. This is what I'm struggling with. And this is how I would like for you to fix it. And so with that in mind, let me offer a something different. Instead of informing God of what he already knows to be true, maybe we ought to ask God what he wants us to know and understand. God, I'm in a difficult place. You fill in the blank, whatever that may be. And you already know that, so I don't need to inform you. So my question is, what do you want me to learn in the midst of this hard thing? The question is, God, what do you want me to know? Again, God knows us better than than we know ourselves. His his goal is to bring about His highest good in our lives. He wants us to become everything He created us to be. He wants us to live out of the the joy and contentment that, that is made possible in the relationship that we were ultimately created for. So God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to understand? about who you are in the midst of where I am. And just like Joanne sang in her song, and how do I learn to trust you when I so easily go astray? How do I love as you loved? How do I live as you lived? Help me, Lord, put aside the ritual so that I can live in an abiding relationship with the living God in whom I find purpose and value and worth and security and everything else is a false hope. So God, what do you want me to know? Let me just encourage you to enter into your time with the Lord with that heart in mind. We don't have to inform him. He's pretty good at picking up things on his own. But I think we're often not very... Willing to listen to what he has to say. And maybe that's where we need to camp out a little longer. What do you want me to know? So as we sing this last song. uh, I would ask that you. uh, Use it as an opportunity to. Maybe take the truths of this song. And consider it an answer to the question. Lord what do you want me to know? Well maybe some of what the Lord wants you to know is what we will sing in this song as truths that come from his word. And then when we're done, before you dismiss, let me close this in prayer. Um, It talks about the victory that was won. And I want you to understand that when it uses that term, it's describing the victory over sin and death so that we can live eternally in a relationship with God that begins the moment you believe. That's what we're singing. I'm going to let you in on something that I have told you that I struggle with. Sometimes it's irrational, but I can be overcome with anxiety over really good things Leaving on a backpacking trip. I'm leaving on a backpacking trip that I love. And I could barely function this weekend because I was so worried about all the people that I would be responsible for. And I was robbed of the joy of something I so deeply love to do. And I read something this morning. That just struck me. And I want to share it with you because I believe this is the way God loves us. In that he reminds us of things that draw us into a place of trusting him. And this is what it said. It says we need to focus less on how weak we are and be reminded of how great God is. That's all it took for me to be reminded that that's where I find my security, (laughs) that he's sovereign and ultimately responsible, and that's not my job. And so I can enjoy everything he's created for us to experience because he is with us, he is for us, and he loves us, and all that we're going to see is going to be a demonstration of the vivid beauty of his love made throughout creation. And so I don't know where you're at this morning and what you may be struggling with, but I'm going to share that with you in hopes that maybe it would encourage you so that no matter where you're at and no matter how you might feel, that you would worry less about how weak you are and you would be reminded instead about how great God is. And that would just cause you to do as I did this morning. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, my living hope, who is alive and well in pursuing me daily you truly know me. Amen. So I'd like to introduce you to a new family. So Ron and Jan Kirkus, if you would come up, please. So Ron and Jan, just a quick little story about this sweet couple. They hadn't been going here very long and they reached out to me and said, hey, we'd love to have dinner with you and your family or lunch after church one day. And I said, that'd be great. We'd love to get to know you guys. And so We sat down, and they were kind enough to tell us their story. But what impressed me most, it was Grant and Terry and I. Don't look at me. (laughs) But uh, through the whole conversation, they kept wanting to know about Grant. Grant, tell me what you enjoy. Grant, tell me what you've done that just kind of made you come alive. Grant, tell me about you. I have never felt more loved than to see somebody, shows such interest in our son. And I think that it relates to what we talked about this morning, because there's no greater demonstration of sincere love than someone who wants to know you. And so I thank you for that example that you gave us, and I'm grateful that you're a part of this church family, because that's what you bring to all of us. And I'm So blessed just to know you and know that we will be blessed because you are part of our family. So let me pray for us. You can stand and we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for the time this morning. So rich and true. And I pray that it stirs our hearts to grow deeper in our love for you. Not because we know truths about you, but because we experience your life with us. Father, I... Know that each of us who have put our faith in you belong to you. That we are known by you. And loved by you in ways far beyond we could ask or imagine. I pray that that stirs within us a desire to move towards you. And to ask you that all important question. Lord, what do you want me to know? No matter what the circumstance is, Lord, even though we may struggle in our weakness, may we be reminded of your greatness and rest in that truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Y'all are dismissed.